Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hey everyone, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast and go through this study of the Bible with me. Uh, It really does mean a lot, all of you who listen. Uh, The fact that I can be used to be a benefit to anyone is really just awesome. And the fact that it gets to be in the form of something that I really love, like doing this podcast or doing studies um, that I find beneficial even for myself is really an added blessing. So thank you very much for being here. I I really do appreciate it. And for those of you who listen regularly and might have wondered where I've been. It has been a long, long time since I've recorded anything or posted any episodes, so I really appreciate your patience as well. It's been kind of sad not not recording anything. I really enjoy this full process from uh, having ideas about things or studying things or taking notes on things, even all the way into the recording and the editing process even has some enjoyment for me. So it's been something that I've missed in the last, uh, man, probably month or so. I typically try and do episodes once every two weeks, roughly, and it's been a lot longer than that. So thank you very much for your patience. It seems like everybody lately has just been going through so much and life has gotten kind of hectic and chaotic for all kinds of people. So I apologize if you missed this podcast, but it actually warms my heart that you miss it. Uh, that That's pretty cool. So I've had a few people reach out and say, hey, when are you going to post again? And that's really, really awesome. So thanks very much. But uh, if you're familiar with this podcast, uh, you know what we're about. Theology and apologetics, thinking critically about the Bible, some practical Christianity thrown in. Um, but thinking critically about the Bible, that has to be, if I had like a mission statement, it would definitely include thinking critically about the Bible. If I had a catchphrase, that would be in there because that's really the thing that I try to encourage amongst my listeners is not just taking things at face value, uh, just because someone says them, but really studying the Bible for yourself and actively considering what it has to say, whether that's in applying it to your life or in just doing proper exegesis. Um, that is really the crux of what I'm trying to do here with this podcast, thinking critically about the Bible. And so if you're new, that's kind of also a rehash of, of what we do here. But part of thinking critically about the Bible has to include dispelling preconceived notions, uh, things that we just kind of subconsciously adopt because they're ideas that have been touted for a long period of time or with a lot of frequency. Uh, if, if we begin to think critically about the biblical text, but are pulling wrong ideas that we take for granted along with us in our study, it could end up being kind of two steps forward and, and three steps back. You end up entrenching your wrong idea even deeper than it was before, and this can actually cause more damage to your understanding of the Bible. Uh, maybe to you, this sounds a little bit daunting, like, well, I don't know what I don't know. Or I don't know the questions to ask if I don't know what what are these preconceived notions? What am I subconsciously adopting? Um, if it's subconscious, how would I even be aware of that? But really, it's very simple to kind of weed these things out if you do three really simple things. One is don't blindly accept things that are misleading. 
um, look into every claim for yourself and don't just don't just accept because someone says it. That's the first step. For example, uh, you might know the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, but just blind acceptance of that doesn't allow you to look into the phrase knowing what it means clearly. So knowing the phrase and knowing what that phrase means are different things. But if you just accept, yeah, yeah, that's what they call David. Um, even though that is true, he was a man after God's own heart. God even calls him that. That's true. If you accept it without looking deeper or more clearly at it, uh, you'll never learn what it means and you'll just kind of repeat the phrase over and over again. Another example could be uh, if you ask yourself, well, how many animals went into the ark? Or, or how did animals go into the ark is a better way to ask the question. And you might say, oh, they went in, in twos, in pairs of two. But people that have studied the scripture and even just read the account for themselves know that not in every case clean animals went in by sevens and that's a little bit different but we keep hearing the phrase two by two into the ark and that's just kind of what we accept Uh, another one is just a common misconception Uh, people think that adam and eve ate an apple now they did eat the fruit of the tree But eating an apple, uh, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. We know it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that's it. But we'll take into that that they ate an apple. And that might seem like a simple, silly one. But these are things, uh, maybe maybe you think all of these are simple, but we have, I think all of us have our own little things that we bring with us into our study that we just kind of accept because they've been said over and over and over again, or we've seen it in pop culture or whatever, wherever you got these ideas from. Um, but these are types of things that will immediately discredit you in the eyes of skeptics. And although I'm sure that I'm plenty guilty of a lot of this, I want to work to know my Bible well so that I'm not caught only half knowing, you know, certain basics of scripture. It's kind of embarrassing when I make a claim based on something that I just kind of, uh, assume to be true or, um, have always, you know, just accepted without really looking into, and then someone calls me on it. That to me is just humiliating, and I think it, it really can discredit a Christian in the eyes of a skeptic. So knowing our Bibles more clearly, even if these are things that you feel like you don't struggle with, knowing our Bible clearly is always, always important. So that's what we try and do here at Truth Be Told, and that is uh, the first step in the process of getting rid of preconceived notions and thinking critically about the Bible. Don't blindly accept things that might be misleading. So that's the first step. The second step is read the text. Actually get out a Bible, whether it's on your phone or a physical Bible, and read the text. Not just remember it or um, watch someone's interpretation of it or hear someone's interpretation of it, but you actually get out your Bible and read it. Sometimes if you've grown up with the Bible, uh, that can make us feel like we know certain stories. So we don't actually go over the text itself. And this can be a problem because sometimes in other interpretations of the stories, there can be preconceived notions that people bring into it. For example, if you feel you know the story very well because uh, you've heard it since you were a child, well, children's Bibles do not have all of the facts in there. They're, They're meant for children, meant to be more palatable, meant to tell the story, and they're not the place to go to for theology. And I don't think anyone would actually go to those for their theology, um, but I do think that sometimes we can bring like a children's Bible or maybe a movie we saw growing up 
and say, yeah, yeah, we know the story well enough so we don't go to the text itself. But sometimes when we do, we'll find a lot of surprising things in the text that we didn't know was there because we've not actually read it or read it recently, so we've forgotten. So that's the second thing, read the text. And then the third thing is to know that context is important. Historical, cultural, literary, that is all incredibly important. Um, and that type of context is important, and it's also important not to take verses out of context that we've you know, we've kind of gone over that in, pa- in past episodes. That's also very important. So context is important, both for individual scriptures as well as passages, as well as just reading the entire Bible itself. So these three things are the things that we're going to try and do today in our study. And I'd like to isolate one of these ideas, one of these preconceived notions, and go a little bit deeper than we might have allowed for before, and then try and get a clearer picture of a certain figure depicted in the Bible that we might often misrepresent or we often hear misrepresented. And I think you'll probably have figured it out by now. Uh, The figure we're going to be looking at is the Apostle Thomas. More often, he's known by what I think is a misnomer, Doubting Thomas. So we're going to go through these three steps together as we study the character of Thomas And we're going to think critically about his character and his participation in Jesus's ministry. And then we are going to have a better understanding of what the biblical text actually says about him rather than just hearing he was a doubter and then moving on with our lives. If if he's a doubter, we want to know about it, but we don't want to just accept it because that's what we've heard. So first step is don't blindly accept it. Now, I think to start off, it's never a good idea to characterize a person in the Bible or even if they're outside the Bible, really, by one action, particularly when we have more to go off of. And what I mean by this is sometimes, like, we'll read about the kings of Israel or Judah, and sometimes very little is said about them. And it'll just be, well, this king didn't live up to the ideals of this good king, and it'll call them an evil king. And they're briefly mentioned. It's all we have to go off of. And the Bible says that about them. That's all it says. And when this happens, I think we're probably pretty safe in making that same claim about them. I think that's okay. Not that we don't want to study more, not that we don't want to read all we can uh, to understand why they were evil or what they did. But if the Bible sums up the fact that they're evil and that's really all we have to go off of, we can't really naysay that. But if you have a character in the Bible like Thomas, for example, who we have multiple accounts where he's mentioned, we don't want to just take one account and then judge them by that that one thing. Um, if I met you, you know, five different times, and each of those times I got progressively nicer, but the first time you you met me, it was just man, that guy was awful. I would hope that you wouldn't judge me by that one time, even though I know first impressions are kind of difficult to get over and everything. But the point is, when we have multiple accounts of a person or multiple uh, testimonies about a person's interactions with other people especially in the Bible, we need to look at all of those before we make just one overarching blanket statement characteristic about this person stick with that person. I think that's a that's fair to say, and I think that's probably a good standard to live by. So we're not going to blindly accept that Thomas was a doubter. Now, we're not going to deny the fact that he doubted. We're not going to uh, try and read something the Bible doesn't say either. I'm not, my, my effort is not to defend Thomas just for the sake of defending Thomas. My effort here is to look at the biblical text and see what it says. And we're going to do that by, again, first, not just blindly accepting what we've always heard, that it's doubting Thomas, and that's all he is. 
Second thing we're going to do, the second step in the process is to read, actively go to the text and read. So let's let's first go to the part of the Bible where Thomas acquires this name from and read it to gain some clarity because again, maybe we've just heard it or maybe we've heard he's doubting, we never we never really wanted to hear more about why he's called that. We just kind of accepted, okay, doubting Thomas, that sounds fine. But we're we're not going to do that today in an effort to think critically, we're going to go to the text and read it. So John 20 and verse 24 is where we'll start. And that's kind of where this where this begins. And this is after Christ's resurrection. And he has already appeared to the majority of his disciples once. But Thomas wasn't with them. And we'll see that in verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So that's that's the section that Thomas gets this nickname from, Doubting Thomas. And so now we've read the text. We might have learned something just from reading it. We might have gained a little bit more insight. Um, maybe, I know some people can read it and they'll stop right at the part where he says, He will not believe unless this. But maybe we've only stopped at that verse and instead haven't gone on to verse 28 where Thomas answers Christ and says, my Lord and my God. So that's what we get from reading the text. If we we go a little bit deeper, read a little bit beyond just the one verse in question, uh, we might learn something. So now we've read and that's good. That's the second step. And the third step, if you'll remember, is context, getting some context. Um, And with this, we want to ask ourselves some questions, I think. Why, for example, was Thomas so bold? Uh, I think this is an interesting question to get some context into the person of Thomas. And um, personally, to me, it seems like boldness is just a part of his nature. Maybe it's the nature of being a twin, for example. It says Thomas was a twin. Uh, Maybe he's trying to stand out. I'm not really sure. But he seems to be a fairly bold person. Uh, even in his final statement, he doesn't mince any words, my Lord and my God. This is a huge proclamation from Thomas here, a proclamation of belief, I might add, and not doubting. Uh, to get a little more context, we might want to go to other sections where Thomas is mentioned. For example, in John chapter 11, Thomas is mentioned again. In John chapter 11, this is around the time when Lazarus dies and Jesus wants to go back Um, obviously he has in mind resurrecting him, but so Lazarus dies, Jesus wants to go back, but the disciples are uh, a little bit concerned because uh, the Jews are, you know, at an all time hatred of Jesus at this point. And they're afraid that if he goes back into Judea, they are going to kill him. So in verse eight, we see this, um, actually in verse seven, I'll start there. It says, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. In verse eight, the disciples said to him, rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And so Jesus answers them and, and explains that Lazarus has died and he's going to go, uh, to his friend. But Thomas here in verse 16, after this account where he explains them that Lazarus is dead says, 
this. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this is, again, a very bold statement. So in two accounts, we have three actions of boldness, I think, from Thomas. One, when he says, I absolutely will not believe unless I see this, unless I touch his hands and put my hand into his side. He says he will not believe. That's very bold. Then you have him proclaiming my Lord and my God. Huge proclamation. That's incredibly bold. And then here in John 11, saying he will go and die with Christ. That's also very bold. So I think we could maybe say that instead of doubting Thomas, maybe bold Thomas might be a better a better name for him. But uh, this is just part of the picture. So this is just stuff we're figuring out as we go along in the story of who this man was. Um, but this this section actually raises questions for me personally, uh, because I've always heard that the Jews did not believe in a dying Messiah, specifically uh, William Lane Craig in a lot of his debates. He has some of the same uh, phraseology in kind of stump speech answers that he gives. And one of them is the Jews did not believe in a dying, much less rising Messiah. And that, that's he always says that. And uh, so this is something that I've always understood to be true. The Jews hadn't really had much context for a dying Messiah and that Christ had to kind of dispel that notion, had to teach them that he had to die. And the apostles had a really, really hard time accepting this. Now, I think this is true for some people. Uh, there are different different sections of the Bible or the Old Testament that dealt with Messiah. And some believe there were a couple of Messiahs coming. Um, some believe that... Uh, some messiahs had already, had already come, and they didn't see this as one central figure in Jesus Christ, but there were maybe going to be a number of different messiahs or messianic figures in uh, Israel's history, or I guess Israel's future as the Old Testament people saw it, Israel's history to the New Testament. But there were a lot of different ideas about messiah. So this idea that the Jews didn't believe in a dying messiah is actually currently being questioned. Now, I know people like Dr. William Lane Craig do believe this uh, very strongly, and I think there's evidence for it, especially in Christ's teaching to the apostles. They seem to not be able to accept the idea of his death, um, and they seem to be very dejected at the fact that he died and don't really understand what happened to their Messiah. So it kind of seems like they thought they were wrong um, based upon him dying. But I know there's others like Dr. Michael Heiser who believe that there were beliefs in a dying Messiah um, based on suffering servant passages in Isaiah or certain things written in the Midrash. There was a lot of debate on the Messiah or the ultimate Messiah, as well as many different Messianic figures that they saw coming in their near future. Um, but we see them as being all fulfilled in Christ. But anyways, this, this doesn't really matter, but it did raise the question. Why would Thomas say, let us go and die with him if he believed him to be the Messiah and also believed that the Messiah couldn't or wouldn't die? So it just raises a question. I'm not saying I have the, the perfect answer, but either way, one of these two things is true. Either Thomas believed that the Messiah could die, in which case he was okay dying with him or for him, or... Thomas didn't believe the Messiah would die and was okay dying for him to protect him or believed so strongly that he wouldn't die, that he saw no problem in going forward to the town that wanted to kill Jesus because he saw no possibility that it would actually end in death. Either way, I think this speaks to a strong faith in Christ and a certain boldness in Thomas's character. So we can't say that Thomas didn't have faith. Um, maybe he just had faith in the wrong thing. Um, I also think Thomas was so bold in this particular statement 
uh, to add a little more context even, because if you'll remember, just prior to Christ's death, he taught them that many would come in his name, claiming to be him at the end. And these people thought that it was near the end. He said that there would be false Christs coming, some doing miraculous signs, deceiving even the elect if possible. Maybe Thomas didn't want to be one of these men deceived. Maybe he didn't dare to hope. Um, maybe he still had faith, but just that he, like I said, he places faith in the wrong thing or the wrong part of Jesus's teaching at the wrong time. And faith in the wrong thing is something we'll explore a little bit more um, in just a little bit. But in Matthew 24, verse 26, I think this is really interesting. Again, this is a teaching that Christ gave to his disciples just prior to his death that possibly could have been on Thomas's mind. Now, I'm not saying that it absolutely was. I'm just saying it's interesting. These are questions that were raised in my own mind as I studied the Bible. So why not in Thomas's mind as well? Uh, so Matthew 24, uh, verse 26, and it says here, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And this is Christ talking about false messiahs that would come and saying, don't be deceived. Um, Many are going to come and say, gather over here, the Christ is here. Gather over here, the Christ is here. He says, in the wilderness and in the inner rooms. And it's interesting to me that when Christ appears to his disciples, where are they? They're in the inner rooms. I think that's so interesting. He specifically said at the end, people will say he's in the inner rooms and don't believe it. People will say he's in the wilderness. Don't go out. And the first place he appears to some of his disciples, as they're all together anyways, is in the inner rooms while the door was locked. It's also interesting. Paul was taught by Christ in the wilderness. Um, Paul speaks to spending at least three years in the wilderness with Christ. Um, I know people have differing beliefs on that, but that's my belief anyways. And so it's interesting that when he says, don't go to the inner rooms, don't believe that that's Christ, or when they say, come to the wilderness, don't go there. Those are also two places that he did appear to his apostles. But Christ was speaking there of his ultimate coming at the end of the age. Um, So it's not to say that Christ was misleading them or anything. It's just that when he was explaining a future time, the apostles were looking at it as something that would happen very soon or in their own lifetimes. So I could see where maybe, I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but maybe Thomas had doubts because Christ had told them uh, there would be false Christ coming. And when they came, they would appear in the inner rooms or in the wilderness. And here are the disciples saying, oh yeah, he's in the inner rooms. He, we, he just appeared to us. And so I could see Thomas having doubts from some of this. Maybe he wanted to be part of the elect and not be deceived. And so he went a little bit overboard with his disbelief. That's a possibility. I'm not saying it's absolutely true. I can't say it's absolutely what Thomas thought, but it does give us some insight into the things he heard and was present for that might have been on his mind. Uh, They're on my mind anyways, just reading the scripture. So putting uh, ourselves in his shoes might cause us to stop thinking of blame to ascribe to him. Um, Other people will say um, it's pretty clear that Thomas was a doubter and we can work comfortable in calling him doubting Thomas because Christ even scolded him for it. But I think, again, if we're reading the scripture and doing our due diligence to go through these three steps of not accepting things just because uh, someone says them, not carrying in our preconceived notions anyways, reading the text itself and then looking for context in that text, I think we'll see that Christ never is actually scolding 
uh, it's kind of hard to read it as if he's scolding. Now, he, he does offer a blessing to others. And when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, but he never actually scolds the need or desire of assurance. In fact, Christ proves himself to us all throughout the gospels through miracles or fulfilled prophecy, etc. Um, Christ is kind of in the business of proving that he is the son of God. And he does this time and time again. Uh, God, in fact, puts prophecy into the Bible as a proof of himself. He knows we need it. He knows we want it. And uh, he doesn't condemn it by any means. Um, we're supposed to give a defense, do apologetics. We're supposed to give a defense of the hope that lies within. And we can't do that if we don't have proof of it. So it's not wrong to want proof. Um, and we can see that in other stories as well, all throughout the Bible. It's just taking that overboard, um, that becomes a problem, but let's, let's read Christ's words for what he actually says. I'm not saying he was glad that Thomas didn't believe, but I think it's something he understood and was happy to work with, as is evidenced by the text. But we read this and say that Christ was angry with Thomas because he had to see to believe and that this was wrong and that the ones blessed were the other disciples because they didn't have to see to believe. But this is where even more context and reading has to come in. Because in Luke 24, we'll see what I believe is a parallel account. Luke chapter 24 and I'm going to read this from the NKJV. I've been reading from the ESV. I've really enjoyed that translation lately. Um, but I'll read this one from the New King James. So Luke 24, starting in verse 36, it says, Now as they said these things, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Maybe referring to Thomas there, I'm not sure. And then verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate in their presence. So this is Christ continuing to prove um, that he is resurrected and that he is with them once again. But here, if we'll notice, it's all of the disciples that saw and handled Jesus' hands and feet. All of the disciples saw Christ prior to Thomas seeing him. And still, at his second appearance to them, they needed physical proof. They wanted to see him again. They wanted to touch his hands and his feet. Every single one of them, including Thomas. And it says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? It doesn't say your heart, Thomas. It says your hearts, indicating that maybe all of them had disbelief. And still, it says in Luke 24 here, they did not believe for joy. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I, I think um, if I were to summarize it, I think you could probably do a study just on this phrase. But it, it's really interesting. Joy kept them from belief. That's something that's kind of foreign to me. But um, I read this in short, as, as do many commentaries, that it was something too good to be true. They didn't dare to hope. They were, they were so joyful at the concept of it that they couldn't quite bring themselves to believe it because they were afraid that it, it maybe wasn't true and they, they were afraid to get their hopes up. Um, but it was all of them. That's the point. The difference that I'm seeing here is that Thomas, upon seeing him, exclaimed where no one else did, my Lord and my God. And that is recorded of no other disciple. 
That is really, really cool to me. I think this speaks to a certain faith that Thomas had. Now, does this does this elevate Thomas? I, I think absolutely not. Um, is he now head apostle? No, nothing like that. I don't think any of them are, are head apostle. Um, but it does get rid of notions we have from pithy sayings like, like doubting Thomas. And I think it helps us to gain insight uh, not only into one of the apostles, which is important, but also this section of the Bible as a whole. So yes, Thomas did doubt. He did have disbelief, and he was very bold in that disbelief. Um, he, he wanted proof for himself. He claimed he would not believe until he had proof, and the word of the disciples and the testimony of Christ before his death were not enough for him. This is not something to emulate or glorify him over, but I think it's pretty clear if we look at context and read the verse for ourselves and dispel uh, preconceived notions that he was no different than the rest of their disciples in their disbelief and might have even been stronger and faster to proclaim the resurrection in faith than the others were in his proclamation, my Lord and my God, which again is just absolutely huge. Um, No one else had said that up to that point. So then what's the conclusion? What do we conclude from all of this information? I think that we can conclude that if we are going to call Thomas doubting Thomas for this one episode where he seems to still have some faith, just maybe in the wrong things, then we have to do the same for Peter, who was scolded. We have to do the same for David, who wrote the words, even though they were prophetic and from a standpoint of feeling and not from an actual experience, but he wrote the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that not doubt? Is that not disbelief? Or even of Abraham, who is father of the faithful, because when God told him he would have a son, he not only doubted it in the beginning, but then once he believed, he looked for ways to fulfill this himself rather than completely trusting in God. If you'll remember the story, even after he believed that, okay, maybe it's possible to have a son, um, he didn't think it was possible that it could come through Sarah because she was barren and elderly and he just thought this isn't going to work. So instead he tried the concubine of Sarah and tried to do things his own way. So this is not only doubt, but faith, I think, in the wrong thing. You know, kind of limiting God to how he can work and saying he has to work within the physical constructs of who we are, even though he created us. Um, So are we willing to call all of the people of the Bible doubting or faithless because of their instances of human shortcomings? I think it's much easier and makes much more sense to elevate Thomas, not above anyone else, but to the level of the rest of humanity as he deserves rather than devalue the rest of humankind based on their moments of weakness. We all have moments of weakness. So did Thomas. I'm not saying this moment with Jesus um, or prior to seeing Jesus was something to emulate, but I think it's something that we can relate to. So if we want to call Thomas doubting Thomas, we have to call Abraham doubting Abraham, David doubting David, and me doubting me. And I absolutely have no desire to be called that at all. So Uh, Like I said, I think it just makes more sense to, instead of denigrating Thomas, elevate him to the level of the rest of humanity, stop giving him nicknames, and dispel that preconceived notion. So hopefully this has been interesting for you, um, a benefit. Maybe this is something that you've heard before, um, doubting Thomas, and you say, okay, he's gotten a bad rap. That's fine, but I think... Even aside from this biblical lesson and learning about the Apostle Thomas, I really hope from this example that we more importantly gain the structure behind what I've been talking about, the structure of getting rid of preconceived notions, 
uh, and taking one more step in constantly thinking critically about the biblical text. This is a structure that we can use all the time uh, in all of our study, not blindly accepting things just because we hear them from someone often, reading the text for ourselves, and then applying context to the scriptures, whether that's cultural, historical, literary context, or just adding um, ver- to the verses we're reading and reading a full account rather than just picking verses out of context. Uh, we can do all of these things to to just really elevate our study of the Bible and gain confidence in what the text says rather than dragging our own or or even others' preconceptions along behind us. I think that is really important, a really important step to take in studying our Bibles and thinking critically about them. So once again, thank you very much for listening, joining me in this study. Um, it's so wonderful to be back, awesome to be recording again and be um, putting out content for you that hopefully is a benefit, hopefully is enjoyable, and um, just adds to your arsenal of resources, for lack of a better word, uh, in studying your Bibles more accurately and, and more critically for yourselves. So thank you all once again. Um, if you would, please uh, subscribe on YouTube or leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or really anywhere that you're listening to podcasts. Ratings uh, go a long way. Sharing this with your friends is very much appreciated as well. Um, if you found this enjoyable or beneficial, others might as well. So give them the chance for that, and it would really mean a lot to me. Thanks once again to all of you, and until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn to your lives. Thanks, guys.